Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. A currency crisis is starting to bite in Lebanon. But what's surprising is that banking chaos hasn't happened before, even during 15 years of civil war. That has a lot to do with one determined central banker protecting a giant stash of Ottoman gold bars. And in Canada's Arctic, there aren't that many Inuit, but they have a sprawl of dialects and a conflicting jumble of written symbols. Now, after an eight-year effort by linguists, they've all been brought under one unified writing system. But first... We, or at least myself, 30 years ago, didn't believe for a second that the soldiers would shoot people in Chan'an Avenue. In 1989, Han Dongfeng was asked by fellow protesters in Tiananmen Square whether there would be bloodshed. The response he gave still haunts him. I keep telling my people, trust me, I served three years in the army and we were told every day that our purpose is to serve people, not shooting people. And I I don't believe we would do it, but it happened. This generation, people in Hong Kong, they know how far this regime can go. As pressure mounts in Hong Kong, the shadow of Tiananmen Square looms large over people who have been protesting against the government for the past 18 weeks. The demonstrations began peacefully, but have become increasingly violent. Hong Kong's police stand ready to club, tear gas, and arrest anyone that they deem a threat. Carrie Lam, the territory's leader, has recently suggested that military intervention from the mainland is not out of the question. That is also the position of the central government, that Hong Kong should tackle the problem on her own. But if the situation becomes so bad, then no options could be ruled out. China's President Xi Jinping has spoken in more hawkish tones. The state broadcaster quoted him saying, anyone attempting to split China in any part of the country will end in crushed bodies and shattered bones. The protests began in response to a bill floated by Ms. Lam, which would have allowed people convicted of crimes in Hong Kong to be extradited to the mainland. Today, Ms. Lam was forced to suspend her annual address after being heckled by opposition politicians over her handling of the crisis. It was the first meeting of the territory's legislative council since it closed in July, after protesters ransacked the hall. Among those watching on as the situation escalates are some of those who witnessed the events in Beijing three decades ago and the Occupy movement in 2014. How does their experience shape their view of what's happening? There's a sense, sort of 18 and a bit weeks in, that the levels of violence on both sides of these protests are going up. David Rennie writes Chagwan, our column about China. There's a real question mark about where this goes on the protesters' side, and as ever, this kind of giant shadow hanging over Hong Kong, which is, will Beijing lose patience at some point and send in troops? There's a group of, a small elite group in Hong Kong, of people who know what that looked like the last time that Beijing lost patience and sent in the troops, because they are activists who were in Tiananmen Square in 1989. 
So I went to speak to a couple of those who now live in Hong Kong. What's interesting is that their experience in 89 of seeing the troops roll in made them very much moderate voices the last time we had big protests in 2014. But they've changed their mind now. So what do you mean? Why have they changed their minds now? So this feeds into a really worrying sense in Hong Kong of fatalism, that when you ask people where this goes next and what these protests are really for at this point, given the government doesn't appear to be willing to make political concessions, that people instead answer you by saying, well, moderation's got us nowhere. One of the most prominent veterans who lives in Hong Kong from those Tiananmen protests 30 years ago is Han Dong Feng. He still runs a human rights organization which looks at labor unrest in the mainland. He's basically in exile in Hong Kong. Back in the last time we had big protests in Hong Kong, he actually went down and told them that he had seen violence with his own eyes and to be very careful not to give the government an excuse to use violence. When these young people break out and block that road, I run into the road with them. I sit there with them and said, you shouldn't do that. And that you are giving excuses to the police or even the army next door and uh, they could run out and start shooting. And nowadays, when I walk in the crowd and when I felt about uh, what I said to the young people five years ago during Occupy, it was just bullshit. It was kind of a arrogant and a kind of a dinosaur kind of a thinking. This view of, of Mr. Hans that the protesters should keep doing what they're doing, is it one you've heard expressed elsewhere? Another veteran that I spoke to who was in the square in 1989 is a Baptist priest in his late 70s. And he's very interesting because when we had the protests of 2014, the Occupy movement, he was actually one of the leaders and he was sentenced to a suspended prison sentence for his role in that. He's very much a kind of Martin Luther King non-violent leader. But even he, the Reverend Chu Yuming, when I spoke to him, said that it's just not reasonable for the government to expect the youngsters in the protests to be the ones who back down. That they have been made to endure repression and justice, they just won't stand it anymore. And that society is changing, that it's not a challenge to the whole of Chinese society, it's a Hong Kongers wanting to fix their own society. But he basically thinks that even the most hardline protesters you have to understand why they feel they're acting in self-defense. And meanwhile, if no one then is backing down, then this heads sort of inexorably towards more serious conflict. I mean, these, these protests have been going on for, as you say, 18 weeks. Do you get a sense that, that military intervention is, is, is near? I think what's, what's easier to say is that there is a, from the outside, a disturbing lack of kind of realism about this in Hong Kong. You have the very hardest line kind of radical protesters almost want the troops to come onto the streets because that would prove what China is like and trigger an international response. A lot of the youngsters that you talk to who are more sort of moderate, they just say, oh, it'll never happen. And actually the Reverend Chu, he remembers being in the square the day before the troops and tanks rolled in. And he knew that the troops were coming in to, to clear the square, but he, he says he did not think they would use bullets and tanks. So he now thinks that Xi Jinping, China's leader, uh, doesn't want a second Tiananmen uh, for the sake of the regime, 
uh, for the sake of the vast financial interests that China has in Hong Kong, uh, but also for the sake of his legacy. So that's the Reverend Chu's hope, although he's not 100% certain. But what about more widely? I mean, these protesters are uh, a huge number of people, but they aren't everyone in in, in the territory. What's the sense among the the, the wider public about uh, support or indeed concern? I think one of the surprises throughout this 18 weeks of process has been how public opinion hasn't really deserted the protesters yet. And every time they did something kind of unusually violent or stupid or attacked, you know, mainland tourists or were really very violent in some cases towards, uh, you know, policemen or smashed up metro stations, we thought the public would desert them. Then the police go and do something even more stupid and violent. And that seems to rally public opinion once more. I think whatever happens, and, and the best case scenario is probably a really tightened grip by Beijing on Hong Kong over the next few years that really kind of crushes a lot of their political freedoms. What you can say, I think, with depressing certainty is that even if it ends without bloodshed, with just kind of cold repression, that Beijing is losing hearts and minds in Hong Kong in a very big way, particularly the younger generation. You know, you talk to even school kids in school uniforms, their dislike of the mainland government is very intense. And it's hard to see that ever going back to completely normal. David, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Lebanon is a tiny country with more than its fair share of problems. It's never had a strong state and is riven with factional divides. For decades, its governments have been split and squabbling, unable to do much to actually run the country. But in the most difficult times, help has often been at hand from an unlikely source. Lebanon's central bank has far exceeded its remit and filled holes left by the absent state, especially in times of conflict. During its 15-year civil war, Lebanon still paid its debts and guaranteed imports. One man was credited with keeping the financial system afloat. So the Central Bank of Lebanon is um, housed in a building in West Beirut, in the the mainly Muslim part. Of course, the city was completely partitioned there. Fiamma Rocco is a journalist at The Economist. In 1989, she was reporting in Beirut. And Edmond Naim, who was a former law professor and one-time dean of the university, had come out of retirement, left the apartment where he lived with his wife uh, in East Beirut, in the Christian part, and came to live in the central bank building. He had this tiny little flat at the top of the building. His wife used to come visit him every two weeks with frozen meals, all marked up Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So at night, you would see the sort of shine of, of tracer bullets going across the two sides. The bank is very close to the Green Line, which is where the city was partitioned. 
so we're having dinner one night, sitting up on on on, on the terrace outside his flat, and he suddenly says to me, "Do you want to see the gold?" And I went, "Yes, of course." So we went downstairs, and the key to the gold reserves. There are actually two keys to the gold reserves. One was kept on the Christian side of Beirut, the other on the Muslim side. The holders of the keys were summoned and they came and they opened this extraordinarily thick door and they put on the lights. And there there are stacked in wooden trays, a whole pile about the size of a London double-decker bus, trays of gold, ingots of gold, each one wrapped in wax tissue paper and with a wax seal keeping it closed. And it's still it's the seal of the Turkish Empire. This was the divvy up of the Ottoman Imperial Gold Reserve. Mr. Naim's vigil kept that gold safe. He said the bank was able to fund basic services by the Muslim government in the West and the Christian one in the East. The bank paid soldiers and guaranteed food and fuel imports. It bailed out a commercial bank, rescuing people's savings. It became the sort of upholder of ordinariness, if you want. I mean, upholder of normality in a way that central banks don't in other countries. Today, the banking sector still leans on the central bank. After the war, the Lebanese pound was pegged to the dollar, a system that relied on the central bank having big reserves of them. And despite fluctuating politics and security, the banking sector has remained remarkably buoyant. That is, until lately. Now, greenbacks are hard to come by. Recently, in Beirut's banks, this has become a common scene. One customer has been going around various branches trying to withdraw $10,000. The tellers say he can have 5000 today and maybe another five tomorrow, if they have it. Meanwhile, around the corner at a gas station, the owner complains that he needs dollars because that's what he uses to buy gas. Lots of retailers, anyone buying anything imported, complain of the same issue. It's a problem even the supremely resourceful central bank is struggling to solve. It's done everything it can over the past two decades to defend the currency peg and to prop up the monetary system at a time of economic weakness, but it also seems to be running out of road. Greg Karlstrom is our Middle East correspondent. Well, since that legendary Civil War era governor stepped down, the bank has been led by a man named Riyad Saleme. He took over in 1993. This is when the Civil War is winding down. And uh, this is a country where the political system is often paralyzed, where parliament really exercises no oversight over the central bank. And so he has a lot of scope to do things that are outside the mandate of a typical central bank governor. And he's done that over the past uh, 26 years to defend the currency. And he's had help from the commercial banking industry in Lebanon, which uh, has long been really the, the highlight of that country's economy. It's a fairly stable and well-governed banking system. Uh, you have dozens of commercial banks that take in trillions of Lebanese pounds from both the large Lebanese diaspora and from other Arabs who were looking for a safe place uh, to park their money. And so what's the problem now? Is it, is it, is it not sufficiently defended now? The problem now is for all of the assets that both the central bank and the commercial banks have, Lebanon also has a lot of debt. It has public debt at about 150% of GDP, which is one of the highest rates in the world. Uh, And it also has a current account deficit that runs about 25% of GDP last year. All of this has created some very 
cavernous funding obligations for Lebanon. Debt service eats up an ever larger share of government revenue, and uh, it ends up in a vicious cycle where the more debt it takes on, the more ratings agencies downgrade it, uh, and therefore the, the higher the interest rates it has to pay to take on more debt. But as you say, the central bank has been kind of a, a stalwart here for, for decades, keeping things stable. What's it doing about this crisis now? Well, the central bank now has become both a solution and problem to this crisis. The solution part is something that it calls the swap. It's a very convoluted scheme, which to simplify it, uh, basically means the central bank borrows dollars from commercial banks. It pays them above market interest rates for those dollars, and then it uses them to defend the currency. So that scheme, a bit like a pyramid scheme, works as long as there are constantly new dollars coming into the commercial banking system. And for many years, that wasn't a problem. Uh, what's happened now over the past year is they've actually begun to fall. So there's not enough new money coming into the banking system to continue this scheme for much longer. Uh, again, Lebanon finds itself in a vicious cycle where uh, would-be depositors think the banking system looks shaky. They stay away. They don't invest their money. Uh, and that makes the banking system, in fact, shakier. So how are the Lebanese people responding to, to this crisis? Uh, unhappily, so far, we saw some small protests in Beirut and elsewhere around the country. Uh, the central bank has stepped in. It said it will provide dollars at the official rate for a few key sectors, for wheat, for fuel, and for medicine, uh, which should be enough to prevent any immediate shortages of those goods. But it also effectively leaves Lebanon with a two-tiered exchange rate, where the exchange rate that you pay for bread at the bakery uh, is different than the rate you're paying for your imported cheese at the supermarket. So it sounds as if the, the central bank is doing what it can in the face of these these new pressures. But you know, as you say, these are these are sort of vicious feedback cycles that that may make matters worse. It, it's what what do you think could change more broadly in in Lebanese government or society to to sort of bring things back on track? You're right. There's only so much the central bank can do. It can set monetary policy. It can do what it calls financial engineering, but it can't actually fix the real Lebanese economy. To do that, you need government policy, and, and particularly you need, uh, in Lebanon's case, smaller deficits. The problem is, uh, really, neither of these things are likely to happen. Uh, on the economic side, the, the entire Lebanese economy is slowing down right now. Uh, and on the government side, the government has, uh, as usual, been deadlocked. The cabinet didn't even meet for about a month and a half this summer. And meanwhile, you have the, the prime minister who's been dealing with a New York Times report that he paid $16 million to a South African bikini model who he met at a party years ago. How long before they need to tap into those stores of Ottoman gold? <laughs> well, I think they're first going to try to tap into those stores of Gulf cash. But uh, the Gulf countries are not feeling quite as generous as they were years ago. And so Lebanon may have to find a way out of this crisis on its own. Greg, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. What causes poverty? In this week's Money Talks on Economist Radio, my colleague Rachna Shanbog interviews this year's Nobel Prize-winning economists, Esther Duflo, Abhijit Banerjee, and Michael Creamer, speaking together for the first time since hearing they'd won. Their pioneering work has tackled one of the hardest problems in economics. Why do some countries grow rich while others stay poor? Mr. Banerjee says there's not just one answer. I think it's a mistake to think of poverty as being one problem. It's an accretion of different problems which feed on each other and sometimes make the whole thing worse, but often it's a series of problems and it, there's no uh, no sense in which we need to find a silver bullet for 
for poverty, we need to find the set of, uh, you know, whatever, silver pellets that will shoot down all these different enemies. They also talk about why economists get a bad rap and what they were doing when they got the call from Sweden. For more, subscribe to Money Talks on your podcast app. In the far north of Canada's Arctic, 47,000 Inuit remain. They speak five dialects of Inuktut, with nine writing systems between them. Those dialects sound fairly similar. If you can understand one, you can probably work out another. But reading them isn't that easy. They had different writing systems introduced to them by Christian missionaries who weren't collaborating on this at all. So they were all inventing their own different writing system depending on where in the Arctic they were. Madeleine Drohan is The Economist's Canada correspondent. A lot of the writing systems use the Roman alphabet, so you, you can sort of puzzle out the words. But at least three of them use something called syllabics. And it was invented by a missionary based on the Pittman shorthand writing system. So if you're someone who's used to reading the Roman alphabet, you can't possibly figure out what these syllabics mean. And so how do those people deal with that and the difficulty that comes with it? So what happens is Inuktut, like so many indigenous languages, is being threatened by being overtaken by English because that is more and more a common language. They certainly are exposed to English materials from an early age. What's really threatening the language now is digital communication. I mean, it is just so much easier to text and message in English than it is to do it in one of the many writing systems. Are there any pushes then to to preserve these old dialects and and writing systems? There are pushes to preserve the old writing system, but there's also a push to get everyone to agree on a writing system to simplify things, to save money, to spread these materials across the Arctic. So there's a group called the Inuit Tepirit Kanatami, and that represents all the Inuit in Canada. And it led the effort, and it was an eight-year effort, for everyone to agree on which letters from the Roman alphabet corresponded to which sounds. They wanted to make sure that no dialect would be left behind, that the sounds in every dialect could be replicated just with letters because they wanted to make this as easy as possible for people to use. And so are people optimistic about that effort? Is is a a single unified writing structure, now that it at last has been agreed, going to keep people using Inuktut? It's certainly the hope that everyone is going to start using this more and more, and that not that the old ways will die away, but at least that there is now a common writing system that everybody can communicate in. But keep in mind that things move very slowly in the North because the Inuit really believe in consensus. That's why it took eight years to actually agree on this writing system. And so they'll take it very slowly. There are definitely a strong push among the elders in the North to preserve the old way, especially those that are attached to the syllabics. For them, it's a part of their culture. 
it may have been introduced as part of colonization, but it's still something that they grew up with, that they're familiar with, that differentiates them from other people. And so they're not happy to see that go. And what's going to happen with this new writing system, for the time being, it's going to be overlaid on all the other writing systems with the hope that it will gradually be adopted by everyone. It's going to take many, many years before it actually is fully accepted across the Arctic. Madeline, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.